I think one of the most uh, beloved of Christmas traditions is that of giving gifts. It seems to be a universal Christmas tradition that, that we give gifts to one another in this time. And as, as a parent, uh, there, there is more joy in the giving of gifts than in the receiving of gifts. In fact, my family likes to tease me because I have a hard time uh, waiting till Christmas to give people their, their gifts. And uh, usually Jennifer guesses her gift, and she says it's because I just am really bad at keeping secrets, but, uh, but the reality is she usually guesses her gift, and then I give it to her and get another one. So I think, one, she's a good guesser, but she's got everything to gain in this equation. So maybe she's just, you know, working really hard to find out what it is. No, I am really, really bad at keeping it a secret because I just, I enjoy giving gifts to my family. And Jesus was right. It is more blessed to give than to receive. We don't always understand that as kids, though. As kids, we're all about the getting and not so much the giving. And it's exciting. There's anticipation. There's suspense. There's mystery. There's all this excitement that goes into it. Maybe even a little uh, greed as well (laughs) as we're young and we just care mostly about what we're getting. But all of this, whether it's the giving of gifts or the receiving of gifts, is an exciting and wonderful part of Christmas. And really, ultimately, what it should do is point us to the ultimate gift that was given, and that is Christ. And so that's why we want to look at this idea of gifts, because God has given us so much in terms of His Word, and His Son, and salvation, and every spiritual blessing. But John 3.16, a passage that we're going to come to uh, this, this Christmas, which I think in, is... Uh, wonderfully simple, but has some things that are really misunderstood about it. Uh, It teaches us that God loved, so he gave. Because God loved the world, he gave his only son. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. And it's not that big of a stretch for us to understand that, because as parents, we love our children, we love our family, and so we give. But as I was doing this word study through the book of John on the word give, this passage was maybe the most surprising use. There's more than 400 uses of the word in the New Testament. It's all over the place. But as I studied it through the book of John, this was the most surprising passage for me. And it was most surprising to me because... As we usually find, it is God the Father who is doing the giving. That's no surprise. John 3.16 says that God loved and so he gave. And here we see this word give twice occur in this passage as well. And both times it's the Father who's doing the giving. But what surprised me most was not that the Father gave something, but what the Father gave and to whom he gave it. Because what this passage tells us is that for those of us who have trusted Christ, who have believed in Christ, who, as Jesus says here, have looked on the Son and believed, who who are saved, who are trusting in His life and death and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins, God gave us as a gift to the Son. And I, I can't help but think, as I look at my own life, as I weigh out the things that I've done, and even who I am today, I can't help but think, what a lousy gift. 
Like, Jesus came as a baby, subjected himself to his own creation, not only to live obedient to the law that he gave, but to die a death penalty like he had disobeyed, even though he had never disobeyed, all to redeem us and the reward for his passion that's a word that means suffering. When you hear of the passion of the Christ, it's, it's not like this burning love kind of idea. It's the suffering. The reward of his suffering is a sinner like me. And yet, Scripture is clear that God delights in the giving of this gift and that Christ delights in the receiving of this gift. But in order to understand this passage today, and the amazing thing of what we see here, we have to understand a little bit about the context of, of this first I am statement in the book of John. That Jesus had been teaching, and crowds were following him, and no doubt he was healing, and, and, and this large crowd gathered around him, and they were following him for so long that they had been without food for some time, and so we get the famous feeding of the 5,000 passage. Now, Matthew tells us in Matthew 14, 21, that that 5,000 number was only counting men, so if you include their families with them, a reasonable estimate is somewhere between 15 and 20,000 people get fed by Jesus. And like many of us today, just watch a presidential election, the guy who offers the people the most is usually the guy who's going to get elected. The guy who makes the biggest promises, promises to put as much as possible in the people's pockets. And this is the crowd that's following Jesus. And they want to make him king. In fact, the, the, the tense of the Greek verb that here in John chapter 6 lets us know that this was not the first occurrence. They were coming again to make him king by force. They wanted to make him king because he could provide. But the rest of the context, which we'll talk about here in a minute, helps us to see that they did not really get who Jesus was and what he was offering. So as they're coming to make him king by force, once again, he slips away crosses the Sea of Galilee, and they catch up to him. And when they find him, they want him to feed them again. And Jesus, he says no, basically. And they taunt him. They kind of, I think it's a manipulative effort to try and get him to do what they want. Well, Moses, this, this great and ultimate and maybe first of the great prophets, well, Moses, he fed us manna in the wilderness. Now, a discerning crowd would understand that Moses fed them nothing in the wilderness. God fed them manna in the wilderness. And Jesus points that out to them. He points out to the, the fact that it wasn't Moses who provided for them. It was God who provided for them. Jesus doesn't take the bait. He doesn't take the manipulation. He, he doesn't take their childish desire to receive gifts from him without real trust in him, without any affection for him. There's nothing wrong with wanting to receive from Christ. But when it's not coupled with genuine faith, life-changing faith, when it's just a, a demanding of something out of him that isn't real and genuine faith, he, he basically tells them no. 
They say in verse 31, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, Moses has not given you bread from heaven, but my father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Just as manna came down from heaven and the people of Israel in the wilderness did not know where it came from or what it was, and God provided it for them so they might live, he's now shifting, Jesus is shifting the analogy to himself because he's going to say multiple times in this passage, not only that he is the bread of life, this true bread that he speaks of, but that he came down from heaven. He's trying to shift their desires. Now, now, this is not out of a lack of compassion. He already had compassion for them and fed them once. But out of continued compassion for them, he he tries to help them trade up. Uh, Even if I were to give you bread, you would, as we see clearly, as you're seeking bread again, just be hungry again. Don't seek that kind of bread. Seek the true bread that comes down from heaven, that gives life to all. And then that is the context that they ask, Lord, always give us this bread. Now, they still don't get it. Wait a minute. There's some kind of bread better than the manna that Moses gave that we could somehow physically eat and never be physically hungry again? Lord, give us that bread. That brings us to the immediate context of our passage today, where Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Jesus mentions three parties, if you will, in this passage. Two individuals and and a group. Uh, These three parties are the Father who has sent the Son. There is the Son who has come down from heaven as the sent one. And then there is those who believe in him. Really, we might say that there's a fourth party, and that is those who don't believe. But we're only going to look at these three parties that Jesus addresses today. The Father himself and those who believe in him. And initially, I made a chart that just had Father, Son, and us written at the top of it. And as I read through this passage, I put under each of those headings anything that was said about that particular party. And, and really, it was a, a pretty profound experience. It was incredible to see exactly what Jesus says here. And so I want to look at this passage from those, or, or in regards to those three parties and what it teaches us about each of them. Number one is the Father. The, the Father. Twice in this passage, we are told that God gives or that he gave. In fact, in verse 37, Jesus begins with this simple statement. All that the Father gives me. Now, this is a, a present tense. All that the Father is giving me will come to me. And we're going to see here in a a moment 
that what Jesus says is a little a bit of a tough pill to swallow, but, but hold on to that thought for a second. He, he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And then he says this, and the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. Now, this is, uh, this is hard to see in Greek, but Jesus begins to stack up negatives. Now, in English, uh, you can probably remember uh, early on in English class in elementary school, double negatives are a big no in English. We don't uh, stack negatives, but in Greek, you do. And it strengthens. There's two ways to say no or to negate a statement. One is may and one is ooh. And when you put them together into may, ooh, you get this impossible idea. And Jesus begins doing that here. He, he says, uh, of the, those the Father gives me will come to me and I will never may, ooh, cast him out. There's no way I could ever cast that one out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now this is the will of him who sent me, that of all, here's the second occurrence, all that he has given, I lose nothing. And this is an even stronger version. Jesus is, is telling us basically that there is no way possible that anyone whom the Father gives to the Son could not inherit eternal life. And, and, and the reality is that as Jesus begins to tell us this, he starts by saying that all that the Father is giving to me will come to me, but then he clarifies this for us, and he says in verse 39, now this is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing. Has given. This is a past tense called a perfect, and uh, fortunately for us, the perfect tense in Greek and in English function the exact same way. It is a past tense action with present tense implications. A past tense action with present tense implications. Let's pretend that uh, I had borrowed Jennifer's car and I did a bunch of errands, running around, went to Tri-Cities, it's out of gas, I come home, I park it. She just makes a quick errand uh, later that day, sees that it's empty, and, and the next day, uh, she, she comes to me and she says, hey, you borrowed my car, but it's empty. And unbeknownst to her, I went to the gas station early that morning before she had woken up and filled up her car for her, knowing that she needed to, to use it that day. And I said, oh, I went to the gas station. The, the idea is not that I went to the gas station. What I'm telling her is that her car is now full of gas and ready for her to use. This is a perfect tense. It is, it is a past tense action with present implications. And that's what Jesus tells us here. Now this is the will of him who sent me. That of all that he has given me in the past, I lose nothing. Why is this so important for our text today? Because the past tense action is that God gave people to the Son. The present tense implication is that all whom the Father has given will come to the Son and he will raise them up on the last day. This is wonderful. From eternity past, God has given those 
who would believe as a gift, even as a bride, to his son. We, we see this clearly in other passages. Titus 1.1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, and I didn't put the whole passage in there, it's one and two, so since I failed to put it in my notes, I'll turn there in my Bible, which accords with godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised from all eternity. Well, last week, as we looked at the aseity of God, we, we see that the only thing that has existed for all eternity is God himself. And for this promise to have been made from all eternity means it's an intra-Trinitarian promise. That within the Trinity, from eternity past, God promised to give eternal life to God's elect, according to Titus 1, 1 and 2. We see this uh, maybe even clearer in 2 Timothy 1, 8-9. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Before time existed, before creation, God in Christ gave us grace. From eternity past, you and I, living these momentary lives, sin-filled lives, redemption-needing lives, have been the promise of God to the Son. Can you imagine that conversation? Before the ages began, when the Father tells the Son, Son, I want to give you a gift. And that gift is going to be people. But not just any people. It's going to be a redeemed people. It's going to be a saved people. Who as a whole will be your bride for eternity. And you're going to redeem them. You're going to redeem them by becoming one of them by being subjected to their willful wickedness, by suffering to the point of death, even death on a cross, by resurrecting from the dead. And all who look upon you and believe in you will be saved and you will raise them up on the last day. And son, this is my gift. That is what is packed into the idea in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Why is this hard? Why is this a hard thing for us to understand? Well, because the context shows us that Jesus is telling us that as the reason why the crowd has not believed. You have seen me. Verse 35. 
Lord, give us this bread. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, step one, and yet do not believe. There's the problem. They've seen him. They know that he has something to offer, but, but like children just longing for the next thing that they might get out of their own selfishness, they have not believed. They have not trusted him. They have not come to love him. And then in verse 37, he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And we have to wrestle with the difficulty of the fact that that that, that is Jesus' reasoning for why they have not believed. But for those of us who have believed, the glorious truth is that we are a gift of God to his son, determined from eternity past to be a bride, a bride of redeemed sinners, redeemed by the death of the son and for the glory of the son. We aren't just recipients of gifts from God. We are one of the gifts from God to his son. But this should lead us to be like dogs and not cats. What do I mean? Well, Jennifer saw a meme earlier this week contrasting the difference between dogs and cats. Dogs, on one hand, look at their owner and they go, they feed me, they water me, they care for me, they bathe me, they, they, they give me treats, they take care of all of my needs. They must be God. And the cat says, they feed me, and they care for me, and they house me, and they take care of me. I must be God. We, we got to be cat, or dogs and not cats. The fact that God has given us as a gift to his son should not cause us to swell with pride, but to rejoice in humble gratitude, to acknowledge that he is God, that he is the Father, that he, in his infinite goodness, chose to give us as a gift to his Son. Secondly, we see Jesus. It gets a little less complicated here. Uh, There's nothing here that says Jesus gave. Um, We see in John 3.16, as I've already mentioned, that Jesus was also given While we have been given to the Son, the Son has been given to us. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. But there are some pretty incredible statements here about who Jesus is and what he has done. First, in verse 38, the first half, he says, For I have come down from heaven. We see first and foremost that Jesus has come down from heaven. This speaks to his divine origin a huge theme in the book of John. Those of us who have been born, though we will live for eternity into the future, we have not lived from eternity past. We have a beginning, though no person will ever have an end by God's design. But God and God alone in his aseity and his omnipotence has existed eternally in both directions and even outside of time. That's just simply a way of talking about it that we can understand. And Christ and Christ alone has come down 
from heaven. This speaks to his divine origin. That he is not merely a man, that he is the God-man, eternally God, eternally the second member of the Trinity, who has taken on flesh and become one of us. And second, we see wonderfully, again in verse 38, that he always does the Father's will. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Both in life and in death, he was perfectly obedient. When God said, go become one of them, he came and became one of them. When God said, live a perfect life, he lived a perfect life. When he said, die a substitutionary death, he died in our place. There is not a single command in the law of God or from God directly that Jesus has ever disobeyed from life to death. This is captured so beautifully in the hymn, Before the Throne of God Above. One of the, the, the verses reads or says this, because the sinless Savior died. Sinless, that's his life, died, obviously his death. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. And thirdly, we get this three-piece statement on the certainty of what Christ will do. Why do we as a church believe in what we call eternal security, that once somebody is saved, they cannot lose their salvation. It is because Jesus here and all sorts of places throughout the New Testament is making clear that the certainty of our salvation does not depend upon us, but upon him. Look at verse 37. All that the Father gives to me and the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. If Jesus at one point had received you because of faith and then you turned away in unbelief and he rejects you, we could say that he has then cast you out. And one of two things, there's only one of two possibilities if that happens. One, Jesus is a failure and did not do the Father's will here. Or two, he's a liar and said he would do something that he didn't do. But he tells us that he will... And he stacks three words here. Never, ever, ever cast someone out. Verse 39. Now this is the will of him who sent me. That of all the Father has given me, I lose nothing. If God has even given one person to Jesus who then does not believe and get saved, Jesus is also a failure. He must, if he is going to be a man and a God of his word, save every single person who the Father has ever given him. And then in verses 39 and 40, we see that the certainty of the fact that he will raise us up in the last day. Now this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father. This is the will of my Father that I always do, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him will have eternal. Not temporal. Not the possibility of eternal life. 
not even the probability of eternal life, that when you see the Son and believe, you have eternal life. And if you can lose eternal life, it must by very definition not be eternal. But no, he gives eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. The certainty of our salvation is not dependent upon our faithfulness or our power to believe or our goodness. It is dependent upon the power of God in Christ. And Jesus will never lose one. Not ever. He came down from heaven He does the will of the Father, and the will of the Father is that of everyone who comes to him, he will save them, and he will raise them up on the last day. We are not awaiting eternal life, believers. We have it today. And the final party in this passage is believers. It's us. It's the one given to the Father, or to the Son, by the Father. And this is where things get really, really interesting. Because the role of the Father is to give people to the Son. The role of the Son is to redeem them, to give them eternal life, to never cast them out, and to raise them up on the last day. What is our role? Nothing. Nothing. We're just called to see and believe. We don't do anything in this equation. We just see and believe in what has been done by the Father and the Son. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him. This is a a wholehearted, faith-type word. That everyone who sees the Son, the crowd saw but didn't believe. So not like the crowd who just wants something from him, but those of us who, just, who, who not only see the Son, but savor the Son, who not only see the Son, but trust him and delight in him and love him, we gain eternal life. Not because of anything that we have done, but because of what he has done. Alistair Begg illustrates this so well. He, he raises uh, the, the old question, that if you, had, uh, if, you, if you were to die today and you were to be transported up to the, the entrance of heaven and there's an angel standing there and he says to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What is your answer? And Beg points out to us that if our answer begins with anything in the first person, we have got it wrong. Well, I believed. I trusted I went to church. I gave 10%. I did good works. I was a member at Trinity. I, I, I. These are all the wrong answers. I wonder what it would be like for the thief on the cross who that day dies and he stands before the angels and they say to him, why are you here? And he says, I don't know. Well, what do you mean you don't know? How how can you not know? I don't know. I was on the cross, and now I'm here. Well, well, how how can you not know? How how can you? I'm I'm confused. I'm going to have to go get my supervisor. And so they go get the supervisor angel, and they bring the supervisor angel out. And he says, why are you here? 
And he says, I, I don't know why I'm here. And he says, okay, well, well let's start with your, your Christology. Uh, let's talk about the doctrine of justification. The, the doctrine of what? Okay, let's, let's take a step back. Where were you a church member? I, I wasn't a member of any church. Okay, well, let's go back even a step further. Where were you baptized? I was never baptized. I don't know anything of what you're talking about. But here I am. And so the supervisor angel looks at the man on the cross and says, Why are you then here? And he looks at the angel and says, The man on the middle cross told me I could come. That's the right answer. He said I could be here. He lived. He obeyed. He died. He was resurrected. I've looked on him, I believe, but I have not done anything. He said I could come. It's the only answer. Listen to the words once again of the whole hymn before the throne of God above. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. His name is graven on my hands. His na my name is written on his heart. I know that while with God he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ, my Savior and my God. Lord, you are our only plea, our only defense, our only righteousness. It is not because of anything we have done or could do or even are that you have redeemed us, but simply because it pleased you to redeem us, to display your might, your glory, your grace in our salvation. We have no plea other than Christ. We, we have no reason other than him and his life and his death and his righteousness that you should accept us. We cannot fathom the fact that you would delight to give us as a gift to your son. And Jesus, that you would delight to receive us as your bride. But we know that all of salvation is not because of our character, not because of our goodness, but because of yours. 
And so we trust that you delight in us and over us and to give us and to receive us because of who you are. This Christmas season, may we be impressed upon the the weight of what it means that, that not only the Son was given to us, but that we are a gift to your Son. Lord, may our lives prove worthy of being that kind of gift. May our tongues proclaim the glory of what you have done for us in Christ and the goodness of what you have done for us. Would you draw people? Would you, would you use us as we tell of who you are and of what you have done to give people to the Son? That they might be redeemed and join the chorus of, uh, of the church with us in singing your praise. Let us never drift to thinking that we had anything to do with our salvation other than the sin that made it necessary, but that our perfect plea would always be what Christ has done and that he told us we could come into your presence to be with you. Be glorified in that this Christmas season, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.